Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Corin Stone, who most recently served as the Deputy DNI for Strategy and Engagement at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI. Corin began her career as a law clerk before joining the U.S. Department of State, where she completed a tour in Iraq and served as legal advisor to Ambassador Negroponte in Baghdad. She then transitioned to the IC, where she served as the Principal Deputy General Counsel at ODNI and Executive Director at NSA. Hi, Corin. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. So you have had a bit of an unconventional path into the intelligence community. Can you tell us how you found your way from the State Department to the IC? Well, it was a pretty unexpected series of events, I would say. So I was a State Department lawyer in the legal advisor's office, and I was working on foreign claims and investment disputes, including things um, that were going before the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal, which had stemmed from the 1980s. And so it was a lot of litigation still going on there. And um, in about 2004, I volunteered to go to Baghdad as um, the State Department representative in the DOD General Counsel's office that was out there. And during the time, the Coalition Provisional Authority was in Iraq and was sort of running the country with the Iraqis. And there was a DOD um, legal office that had detailees from all over the government. And so I was the State Department representative out there. And about halfway through my tour in the middle of 2004, DOD was leaving Iraq and the State Department was coming in and we were um, standing up a U.S. embassy. um, And when DOD left and state came in, I was really the only lawyer that stuck around. There was one other person who stayed with me. And so I became the de facto legal advisor for the embassy um, and for Ambassador Negroponte, who I didn't know at the time, but obviously came to know pretty quickly Um, And we had to reestablish diplomatic relations with Iraq and present his credentials as the new ambassador, which is essentially like him going to the foreign minister and saying, here's my resume. Am I good enough to be the ambassador? And they say, yes, thank you very much. And it was pretty funny because at that time, you know, we um, were trying to get all the paperwork done in time. You know, the timing of these things have to happen kind of pretty quickly when you're standing up a new embassy and you're trying to kind of establish the relationship and present the credentials. And so at that moment, we were working out of the palace and the electricity was spotty and the email was spotty and we couldn't get around the green zone very easily or to the government buildings. And so I'm having this email conversation back and forth with the foreign minister's assistant trying to get the paper signed that, you know, we needed to have signed in advance. And we go over to this building and we're standing outside waiting to go in to see the foreign minister and I still don't have the paper signed and everybody's like, where are the papers? Where's the papers? Um, And we haven't been able to, you know, get on the phone. And the guy comes running up to me at the last minute with an envelope and I didn't even have time to check. I was like, great, great. I'll take it. And we go running in to the, to the um, room and ambassador Negroponte presents his credentials 
and I was standing behind him with um, the, the political minister and a couple other senior officials from the embassy. And the funniest part is that um, the New York Times uh, got a picture of it and they put it on the front page of the paper the next day. And they happened to slice the photo in such a way that you can see me standing behind Ambassador Negroponte. And so there I am, like, I didn't even realize it. I'm on the you know cover of the front times. And I call my parents, I'm like, go get the paper. And they, you know, buy up all the papers and they call my relatives in California and they're like, go get the paper. And the <laughs> times figured out three hours with that three hour difference. They figured out how to splice me out of the picture. Oh, no, so I'm not in the West Coast edition. I'm only in the East Coast edition. So that was a crazy moment, but it was really, really fun. And so we reestablished the relationship and then, you know, had a couple of months there uh, standing up the embassy and, and getting our feet under us. And then it came back to the State Department and Ambassador Negroponte was nominated to be the director of national intelligence, the first DNI. And so he asked if I would help him stand up that agency. Um, and I didn't even know what it was at the time. I was like, what's the DNI? Okay, sure, I'll give it a shot. And so I quick downloaded the law, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004 that created the DNI. And I read it as fast as I could and and we got to work and then I ended up staying on as the deputy general counsel. So it was pretty crazy, but fun. Oh, wow. How long was your tour um, while you were in Iraq? I was there for eight months wow. over the course of 2004. Yeah. Wow. So there have been several points in your career where you were able to bring a new perspective, create something new entirely, um, including both at NSA and ODNI. Can you share with us a few examples that you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, I think creating the ODNI, I'm very proud of. That was, um, you know, a handful of us literally at the beginning trying to figure out what the law was asking us to do, um, how we could implement the 9-11 Commission recommendations, what the IC agencies wanted from a DNI. Um, and, you know, we're building the plane as we're flying it, as they say. So, you know, we were asked to stand up and try and figure all this out. Meanwhile, we were getting um, tasked with things as an agency right away. And so, you know, we went around to the IC agencies to understand their viewpoints and try to figure out where the gaps were that we were trying to fill in. And it was just, you know, an incredible experience to stand up something like that. And it, I think the agency continues to evolve um, even today. And so that's really fun to watch. And then I would say within that, I was also working on standing up the Office of General Counsel within the ODNI. That was really fun because, um, you know, I started with a couple of lawyers that the CIA had loaned me. Um, and then I hired a few and I got some detailees from other agencies. And we were really working on both the legal work of standing up the ODNI and then also navigating legal issues across the IC. And um, one of the things we wanted to work on um, was to create a legal culture within the IC that we had learned, you know, didn't really exist. The general counsels knew each other, but a lot of the lawyers within the IC didn't engage with each other very often. And so um, we created a general counsel forum to bring together the GCs and talk about issues that um, cut across the whole IC. And then we created um, a legal conference for the whole community um, that goes on to this day annually and is really a big hit. And it's the time when all the lawyers can come together and talk about common legal issues and network with each other and just generally, you know, create a sense of community that hadn't been there. And that was really fun to do because I feel like, you know, it, it was something that was so clearly, I, I would say needed, but also, you know, desired. I think the lawyers really mm -hmm. enjoyed it. Um, and it was so great to, to see people working together and navigating those issues that really mattered to each other. I mean, if you have one agency that, um, let's say, has a FOIA litigation against it, and another agency has a similar FOIA claim and they make different decisions in litigation that impacts each other. And so 
they need to be able to work together and know each other. And so it was really fun when we created the general counsel's forum, though, we had this situation where I wasn't really <laughs> focused on it, but I was like, oh, great, we'll bring all the GCs together. You know, I'm the new deputy general counsel. We'll talk about issues. And at the time, you know, I had come from state and John Bellinger had been the NSC legal advisor, and then he was a state department legal advisor. So he was my boss, um, you know, allowing me to go on detail to the ODNI. And he and I talked and he said, you know, what we really need to do is we really need to revise executive order 12333, which is the executive order that basically governs the intelligence community. And it's kind of a big deal. It's sort of like the, the foundational policy for the whole IC. So I like bring all the general counsels together to this very first meeting of the GC forum. And I walk in the room, first of all, and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, I do not, I am not like these other general counsels. Like they're a different gender (laughs) from me. They're a different age from me. And they've all been in the IC for, you know, decades and I just joined. So, okay, let's see how that's going to go. Take a deep breath. And then I bring up this topic of like, okay, what do you think about revising executive order 12333? And they all looked at me like I had three heads. They were like, what are you crazy? Because if you open up this executive order, you know, you never know what you might get. And it's, it's, it's really hard to revise such a foundational executive order. But they all came back for the second um, GC forum. And eventually after a couple of years, we did actually revise the executive order um, and you know, it, it all went well. So it was just a funny experience because, you know, it wasn't really what I expected, but I was really proud of the fact that, you know, we created that community and we were able to do it. So, and then I guess slightly different to your point from NSA, um, you know, it wasn't creating something new necessarily, but when I came into NSA, I certainly had a different perspective. I was an outsider, very much a different kind of personality for NSA. I didn't have the technical background that most folks at NSA have. Even the lawyers have some level of familiarity with a lot of the technical work that they do or they learn it quickly. And so I was coming in you know, with a very different policy legal background and I was really proud of my ability to relate to everybody there and to learn what they had to offer and to figure out you know, my own value and what I was bringing to the table, because, you know, I did have to have that moment of like, what do they think I am bringing to the table? What is my value to these folks who are so smart in so many ways? Um, And then find ways to make sure that I was adding that value to the product that they already had or to the work that they were already doing. And so um, that was a really great experience that I am proud of being able to kind of come in with a new perspective and help to, you know, provide guidance and leadership for that agency that had so much terrific work and so many great leaders already. But I think I brought a new perspective that was welcome. That's really awesome. So, you know, for, for those aspiring law students who are coming in to law school, who want to be a national security lawyer, what is a a shop look like at one of the agencies? Like how many lawyers are at each agency? Are there only 10 spots and it's impossible for me to ever become a national security lawyer or are there lots of spots? It really varies actually. So some of the organizations, some of the bigger agencies have, I would say a hundred or more lawyers um, spread across many topics, right? They cover everything from um, administrative law to ethics, to litigation, to operations, to anything, capabilities and technology. So there's lawyers spread across all these different topics. And, you know, some of them can have more than a hundred lawyers, whereas sort of the ODNI is like on the small end at 20 or 30 lawyers, depending on the moment. Um, and some are easier to get into than others, I will say. So, um, some of the bigger shops, 
have the opportunity for more junior lawyers to kind of get training and learn um, and come in and need a little more of that guidance. And they have those honors programs that you can apply to in law school and like internships and that kind of thing. Whereas some of the smaller offices don't have enough bandwidth to be able to train people for a very long time. And so they really need folks who can come in with a little bit more knowledge under their belt and kind of jump into the issues right away. And so that's a little bit of a trade-off that you'll get with some of the smaller shops. That's not to say they'll never hire new people. That's not true at all. They certainly Mm -hmm. do. But oftentimes they'll look for folks who have some level of understanding or expertise that they can take advantage of right away um, and who don't need to be fully trained. Um, They do have internships as well sometimes, though. It's just a little more hit or miss. But one of the things I think that's important when you're thinking about getting into this is um, not being too picky about which particular office you might go into because the beauty of the government and the intelligence community is that you can move around pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you um, get into one particular office and learn there what they have to offer and get some experience under your belt, then you have more opportunity to be able to go and move to another office and try out a new role in a different way. So I think there's lots of opportunity there. And, and the key is to apply to a lot of different things that sound interesting and then just jump in when you get an offer. Awesome. So what I find really interesting about your career is that you took on roles across law, policy, and technology that you might not have even thought you were qualified for at the time. What gave you the courage to take those risks? And what would you say to someone who might be taking themselves out of the running for a job that they're actually qualified for? I mean, I think almost every job I've taken has been like that. I, if I look (laughs) back at the jobs that I've had, I think, wow, was I ready and qualified for that? And the fact is, I mean, I'm glad that I didn't really have the time to stop and think about that. I was jumping from kind of issue to issue in a way, you know, they were topics that were um, kind of urgent and needed a lot of work right away. And so I just didn't have the time to stop and think about whether I was qualified. Somebody was saying I should take this job. So, you know, Ambassador Negroponte asked me to, to help with the ODNI. And rather than saying I can't, or, you know, maybe I'm not ready for this. I just didn't have time. You know, I'm drawn to exciting opportunities that I didn't want to pass up. And I just figured, look, I'm, I'm a smart person. And just because I haven't learned this before doesn't mean I can't learn it now. I'm going to work hard to figure it out quickly because there's not a lot of time here. But um, but I'm going to take a deep breath and remember that, you know, I can learn things and um, and I'm trusting that this is something I can learn as well. And I didn't really I just didn't have time to think about the fact that maybe I wasn't ready or qualified. I just got to work and I had great mentors and great bosses who were very supportive and encouraging when I switched from a legal role to a policy role. Again, I had this moment of like, wow, you know, I didn't grow up in the IC. I didn't know, you know, much about IC policy. Um, but I had a great mentor and boss who said, that's okay. Come on, you, you can do it. You're smart. You'll learn it. And I think you'd be great over here. And, and so I just took the leap. And so I think it's a product of um, having good people that you trust that understand your skills and can help give you good guidance Um, having trust in yourself that you're smart and you can learn things. There's a reason that you've gotten to where you are thus far. Don't forget all the things you've done, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're in that same role and, you know, have a little bit of faith in your skills. And if others see something in you, sometimes you have to just go on their faith that, you know, they see something, they think you can do it. I'm going to give it a try. And 
it's hard. I mean, that's not to say I wasn't nervous. I mean, I'd say <laughs> yes. And then like three weeks later, be like, oh my gosh, what did I do? I can't do this. But you know, then I was like, okay, forget it. I'm doing this and just, you know, put my head down and do the work and I can learn it. And, um, and then you get so busy, you just don't have time to worry about it anyway. And so, like I said, for that GC forum, if I had stopped and thought about, you know, walking into the room with all these people who had decades of experience in the intelligence community, and I was literally like, a month in, I probably would have paused for a second. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> like, been oh, terrified. Yeah. But you know, I didn't really have time. We were just so busy. And, and I was focused on creating this community. And I walked in and just ran with it. So sometimes you just got to got to go. So that's a good segue. You know, you've been in so many different roles with a variety of demands. And how have you managed the trade offs and decisions that come with a robust personal and professional life? Yeah, it, it really is something that you manage. I'm, I'm glad you said it that way, because I really cringe at the phrase, you know, work life balance. I just I don't think it's a balance. I think it's rarely in balance, I guess I should say. I think you make trades every day, depending on what you want to prioritize at that moment. And if you're lucky, your priorities align the way you want them to, and you feel fulfilled in whatever you're doing. But, you know, it, it is um, a prioritization and a trade when you're ready to make that decision. So for example, when I was at NSA, you know, before I went to NSA, I was um, here working in Arlington, and I live in Arlington, and I had a two-year-old. And, and I was asked whether I wanted to go up to commute to Fort Meade for this job at NSA, which is like an hour away. I thought to myself, how on earth can I take this job when I have a two-year-old and it's an hour away? And after some discussion, I figured out a way I could leave early and come back kind of on the late side and I wouldn't be in the car forever. And it turned out, I didn't really expect this, but it turned out having a kid who was two, three, and four was a lot better than having an older child because a baby doesn't really know what time it is, doesn't really care if you're home exactly on time. The bedtime routine isn't as important. They're taking naps during the day. And so I could get home at 7.30 and still spend an hour or two and the baby could be up and down and up and down and that was fine. Whereas in elementary school, and the reason right. I came back from NSA was because my son was going into elementary school and I really felt that I needed to be home for dinner. I needed to be able to set a routine where he was reading and taking a bath and getting to bed at a decent hour. And if I didn't get home till 7.30, our whole routine was late to start and going to be late to finish. Um, and I just knew I needed to get back over the bridge into Arlington where I could have a shorter commute. And so I decided that, you know, I had done that job for three years and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. But it was time for me to make a decision that prioritized being home for my child who was going to school and going to start learning things that were hard and needed a, a regular you know, routine where I was there. And so I decided to take a job back over at the ODNI um, that allowed me to be home for dinner and available for school events and things like mm -hmm. that. So, you know, I think we're always reassessing our priorities and I'll probably ramp back up to probably more time consuming jobs um, as my child gets older and decides he doesn't want to be anywhere near me. And then I will be <laughs> Because, you know, I'll have plenty of time. Um, and I think that's just a very personal decision that everyone, you know, confronts and, and no one else's decision should cause you any pressure. You decide what's right for you and your circumstances at that moment. And you just have to kind of go with that and embrace it. I love that answer that, you know, it's, you can't really compare yourself to anyone else and you just have to make the decision that's right for you. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to go back to something that you brought up earlier you know, you were at NSA at a time when the agency was facing questions from the American people involving privacy, civil liberties, and transparency. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience inside NSA at that time? 
Yeah, there were some great people working really hard at NSA. There still are. And it was a very tough time because these folks who are working so hard um, are, were feeling so misunderstood by the American people. And at the same time, there really were real legitimate concerns being raised by the American people. And so it was very, very hard for everybody in the agency. Many people within NSA actually didn't even really know the facts about what was coming out in the papers because they weren't involved in every aspect of what happens at NSA. And so they didn't know how to talk about it with their friends and family, and they weren't really sure what the answers were. And so it was really important for us to arm people with facts um, more or less facts, depending on their roles, but really important for NSA employees to be able to have a basic understanding of what was going on and what wasn't going on and to be able to talk about it with their friends and family. And I think we learned in a way that NSA really hadn't appreciated before how critical transparency is and that you had to take a, a new approach to it. I mean, NSA used to be known as no such agency, right? They mm -hmm. kind of had a panic attack when there was a a sign put up on the Baltimore Washington Parkway that said NSA exit here, right? Like, oh my gosh, what? Um, and, and now obviously, you know, we have to be in a different place. Um, so it was definitely an awakening of, of sorts. Um, there was a new civil liberties and privacy officer that had just come in at the time. And she was doing a lot of work talking about how we were protecting privacy and, and also protecting national security and talking to folks inside and outside the building um, and it really was just an incredible moment to be at NSA because there was a, a culture shift. It wouldn't, didn't happen overnight and it's still happening, I would say, but there was a realization that we couldn't keep doing business the way we had done it before. Um, we needed to make sure that we had the support of the American people in order to be able to do our jobs. And in order to do that, we had to have a trust and an understanding um, about what we were doing in a way that we hadn't previously worried about. And so having some level of transparency and the question about what that level of transparency is continues to be a conversation, but some level of transparency beyond, you know, no such agency. So to pull that string a little bit further, how would you define transparency within the intelligence community and how can we balance our role as secret keepers with our responsibility to maintain the trust and confidence of the American people? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because you know, often people think you can't have transparency in the IC. The very nature of the work requires secrecy. And while it is true that the work really does require a level of secrecy that isn't intuitively compatible with transparency, it has to be. You have to have a level of transparency. And that's what we've learned over the last decade. And so I think it isn't necessarily, again, a balance because that implies a trade-off where if you're transparent, then you can't have secrets and vice versa. I think you have to both have the level, the right level of secrecy and the right level of transparency. You have to have both of those things together. Um, I think we learned that you, you know, we certainly can be transparent about laws and regulations and policies. Um, the IC mission and structure and effectiveness, compliance and oversight frame frameworks. What we can't be transparent about are things like specific operations and sources and methods. Those things that we must keep protected. Um, but being proactive in these other areas goes a long way towards increasing public understanding about the IC. And I think that leads towards a public trust of sorts. I think it's important to distinguish between policy disagreements and mm -hmm. kind of the legal framework. Um, and that, you know, there's at least an understanding of what the intelligence community is doing, even if there may be a policy disagreement, people have policy disagreements all the time, but to recognize kind of the, the work that the IC is and isn't doing is important and to understand that. Um, and many, many people 
in about 2014, put their heads together after Snowden and said, okay, we need to have a framework for transparency. And so we had general counsels and civil liberties and privacy officials and policy folks and operational folks all come together and created this IC principles of intelligence transparency that we have today um, that says exactly what I just said, which is there are some things we can be transparent about and some things we can't. But it's a tough analysis to go through when you're in the IC to understand kind of what fits in what bucket. So do you think that transparency is still an issue? I mean, you've done a lot. It sounds like a lot has been done to increase the transparency, but do you still think it's an issue? Yeah, I mean, I do in that, you know, it's not always easy to figure out what exactly it means to be transparent and how to be transparent in the line of business that we're in. So we've certainly come a long way, um, but we learn every day more about how to talk about our work publicly um, and it is a, a major culture shift that is, is slow to happen. I mean, you don't change a culture overnight. And I think newer generations that do a lot of sharing on social media are much more comfortable with transparency. And there we have to worry and make sure that we're not too transparent. Not being, right, right, right. Loose lips sink ships. Sink ships. Yeah. Right. So we have to make sure we're not too transparent. But on the other hand, it's really hard for folks who've been in the IC a long time and grew up with no such agency um, to, to flip their thinking on how to engage the public, their friends, their family about what they do. And so it's just a real adjustment for people um, that will continue to evolve over time. I think we have to recognize it's just going to take some time for a level of comfort as you're applying kind of your particular scenario and facts to the transparency principles and understanding how you can talk about that publicly. Because it is nerve wracking to make sure that you're not saying something you shouldn't. And so I think the in instinct is just don't say anything at all, whereas that's right. probably not the best approach. I do have one example that I thought was great. I see progress. Um, a couple of years ago, the intelligence community worked across with the whole executive branch um, to declassify and release thousands of pages related to human rights abuses in Argentina between 1975 and 1984. And across IC, um, we spent three years and tens of thousands of hours reviewing and declassifying and releasing records to help Argentina bring criminals to justice and to provide closure to the families who never knew the fate of their missing loved ones. And I was the ODNI senior representative during the release of the final materials to Argentina. And I got to attend the ceremony where we handed over the CDs um, to the Ar Argentina Minister of Justice um, and some of the affected families who were there and spoke about what it meant to them to have that insight. And it was incredibly impactful and emotional to be there um, and to see kind of the um, the way that the work that we had done really, really mattered to this entire country, to this nation of Argentina. And all told, we released, um, I think, about 49,000 pages from the executive wow. branch. And it was just a really public display of our commitment to transparency and human rights. So that was a really great event. And I think a really um, great example of how far we're coming. Wow. So kind of on the flip side of that coin, um, in the current climate, there is a lot of skepticism among the American public towards intelligence. What can be done to repair some of this lasting skepticism? I think it's a couple of things. First of all, I think, you know, we have to continue to reach out at a personal level. Um, you know, we have IC employees visiting their alma maters and talking about what they do and going to neighborhood events or, you know, visiting their, you know, elementary schools and middle schools and really doing that outreach to say, here's who we are. Here's what we do. We're your friends. We're your neighbors. We're your sisters and brothers. You know, we're good people. And if you have a question, ask me, but just really to humanize the intelligence community. So it's not this mm -hmm. big, scary thing. 
Um, second, I think we need to be proactive, especially when we make mistakes, you know, bad news is not like wine. It does not get better with age. Um, mm -hmm. and so you have to be quick and clear and forthright about what happened and how it's going to be fixed. Um, hiding the ball is not a good approach. And I don't think we do that, but we're not always as quick as we could be, um, to get out there and say, here's what happened. And so I think we just need to be more proactive in that space so that we can be clear about what happened. I think it takes time. You know, we didn't get into this position quickly and we're not going to get out of it quickly. Um, so it, we need to be patient and consistent um, and build a level of confidence and understanding um, in the IC uh, with the public. Um, and then again, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I think we need to remember it's okay if people disagree with the policies. That's democracy, right? I mean, that's right. great. That's what we do. Um, we have really important debates about what the policy should be. Um, our goal isn't to convince everyone that this or that administration's policies are great. I mean, it, that's why you have elections. Um, but our goal is to create an understanding of who we are in the intelligence community and what we stand for. Um, so that even if you disagree with the policies, you have confidence that the intelligence community is working honestly and honorably to secure the nation and consistent with the rule of law and American values. And I think that's really the important thing that we need to get across to folks um, is the way that we work, the ethics that we follow, our, our values, our rule of law, you know, that is ingrained in, in the employees and the people of the intelligence community. And it's important for folks to know that. So now we come to the end of our episode. It's actually quite fun because at the end of each episode, we ask the same question. And in keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Okay. I like that you say this is quite fun because it's actually quite stressful. It's very hard <laughs> to give yourself a code name. Let me just say, um, I had to consult with several of my former colleagues, um, and where I've landed, I think I had a lot of different ideas that I could throw out there, but I'm not going to. Where we landed, where I landed is tempered glass. Which, oh, um, wow. That's great. That's <laughs> well, great. It has a lot of interesting qualities. It's known for its strength and for its safety. Um, and so it's used in a variety of really demanding situations, right? And so First of all, transparent and clear, which one of the things that I got back from my friends was you're so transparent. So there you go. Transparent. What, what you see is what you get um, with me. And I try to be really honest and straightforward. So that's thing one. Um, it's strong. It's four times uh, stronger than ordinary glass and can take a lot of stress without breaking. Um, it is simple on the outside, um, but complex in the making. So it just looks like ordinary glass, but there's actually a lot involved in strengthening it. Um, it is somewhat unique because if it does break, it doesn't create jagged shards of glass that hurt you, but it's designed to avoid danger and, and to avoid injury to others. And it's versatile and good for high risk endeavors. So you can put it in a lot of places that you can't put ordinary glass and you can use it in risky situations and areas that require a level of safety and care, like in car windows and um, aquariums and on mobile phones and bulletproof glass and, and plates and cookware, right? So you're going to use it in areas that you want to make sure um, are safe, but also they're sort of risky. So all of those things, um, based on the conversations that I had, um, I think help to describe a little bit how I try to operate, you know, clear and transparently, I try to be strong in what I do, try to be versatile and, you know, able to adapt to different situations. And I try not to let anybody get injured or, or hurt um, <laughs> when things go awry. I try to protect my team. 
Um, so at tempered glass, that's, that's how really original is that? I can't even <laughs> imagine how you came to that. That is really <laughs> awesome. I love that. And a perfect way to end the episode. Thank you so much, Corin, for sharing your time and your stories. I think our listeners learned a lot uh, in this episode. I know I did. And, um, you know, you've had an incredible life in the IC and thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. Thanks so much for having me. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.